I feel I feel very honored to be here tonight um, with everything that's going on in this world and to be invited to come and speak here at Spirit Rock. It feels like a, um, a, deep, a deep honor. So I'm grateful to be here. And the truth is, is that what we're up against is actually not so straightforward. I don't have a magic answer. But what I want to talk about is the Buddha's teachings on loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And talk about these qualities. These, uh, these, they're known as the divine abodes because when we cultivate them, it brings us into a state of mind and the possibility of experiencing uh, expressions that are divine. They're not ordinary. So one of the qualities or the... It, the demarcations of, of div- divine, what is divine, is, is that it, it has this sweetness. And it's, it's, it has this signature of, of blessing. And when we cultivate this, we feel the sweetness and we feel the blessing in ourselves. And we notice what happens in the people around us when our hearts are filled with kindness, when we're filled with joy. So even something as ridiculous as tickling the sky and we're all giggling, you know, for just a couple of seconds and just how much more relaxed it is, you know, to do that. And so we don't have to be so tight and so stiff. We can, we can, we can angle it in in something that's, that's easeful. And from that ease, we can find a way in ourselves. And that's a blessing. So, um, I have been rattled by the news. Anybody else? And, you know, I come with a lot of years of meditation practice, you know. But the combination of one thing and the next, health stuff and a recent bereavement, my mom passed away just a few months ago, there's a, a, a tenderness and so my nervous system is more easily susceptible to um, impact. And this is not personal. This is true for any of us. That when we've had uh, many different things happen and we are tender or skinless, the impacts land in a deeper way. Which means that what's needed is uh, skill as well as understanding what we're navigating. And so that we can bring forward a a kind and a caring response rather than ask ourselves or demand ourselves to be feeling differently. So one of my go-to places when I'm feeling rattled is nature. I, and so I've been, I've been making trips to the beach, (laughs) the ocean. There's something about seeing the vastness of the ocean and looking out and not seeing any structures 
and just watching and seeing the movement of the tide and feeling the waves and hearing the sound where it's one of these magic things that for me, it shifts me out of focusing on my thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations. And it's as if I'm held in something vast and it allows me to relax. And as my system starts to relax, I change from trying to figure out how to sort and fix what I'm experiencing to looking at it from a completely different perspective. And this shift then allows me to have more capacity to deal with what's arising. And then I bring that into the day-to-day experiences of what we need to do and how we need to navigate and cooking and cleaning and interactions with people and how I can start thinking about what's next and how I can view things. And so when I have been, like, with my own degree of agitation with what's been going on in the world and trying to meet it and shift my focus so that I can find something that's wide and spacious and embracing to hold it, I come back to these qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Now, when my system is really rattled so that it's really hard for me to be able to do the basic things in a simple kind of a way, I both need to respond to that with a lot of care and kindness, but I also need to remember the the learning that I've done that one of the things that helps shift the system out of that agitation space into something where I have more capacity is joy. And so I live in this little garden that's kind of like this oasis. It's not very big, but there's hummingbirds that come. And I've got bees. And I love my bees. And I love the hummingbirds. And today I went again to a walk at the ocean. And it's a place, it's Abbott's Lagoon I'd never been before. And seeing the flowers and seeing the pelicans. There were thousands of pelicans or so it seemed, you know. And then the shimmering light on the water. So to take time and notice what it is that I'm seeing. And then I went out and I was walking up and down the beach and I was singing at the top of my lungs and I stopped and as I stopped I looked out and there was a blow spout of a whale. And then I'm walking back to the car and as I'm walking back to the car there's two women and they're stopped and they're quiet and they're looking. There's river otters and they're over there. And there's a coyote and it's in the grass right there. So on the way home I was just spontaneously singing a song and naming all the things that I had seen and saying, Otter, blessing you, blessing me. Whale, blessing you, blessing me. Coyote, blessing you, blessing me. I see you and I feel the blessings of seeing you 
And that blesses me. So when I allow my system to focus on small things, really rein in and fill myself up with joy, it gives me a whole lot more capacity than to be able to navigate what's actually going on. So I have to register when my level of agitation is past a certain threshold that what is needed is particular medicine in the way that I focus my attention. The regular meditation is not what I need then. And so over these last few years in particular, I've gotten more tools around how do you switch the system so that when our agitation levels are like this, it can start to calm down. Laughter is fabulous. (laughs) So any way that we can figure out how we can laugh about anything is really a wonderful way of resetting our nervous system into a way of moderation that then gives us more capacity. And so I've started bringing laughter on my retreats because it's magnificent as a way of helping two people realign and reset and refocus. And so then when we do meditate, we have more capacity. So it's awesome. You guys are on that retreat when we were doing laughing yoga. So it's wonderful. Just wonderful. So then as I have more capacity and then I start looking at, okay, so what are we navigating here, folks? It's like, oh my goodness, this is quite complex, you know, in terms of the stuff that is actually landing in with the climate destabilization and the politics and the pressures on all of these different fronts. And how can we attend to it in a way where there is skillfulness and moving in the right direction? Now, one of the things when I look in a big picture, I can see that what's actually happening or what my sense of what's happening is is we're at an edge of development in terms of moving to another level of consciousness. And I sense that whenever time we're up against a level of growth, we've got a struggle that's happening where there's this kind of like emergence of an old way that's kind of like grabbing hold. And that grabbing hold is then getting power and it's getting prominence. And there's this tendency that I notice in my own mind to try and diminish or other or distance myself from that. So it shows up in funny ways. Like a couple of years ago, we were uh, the election... I can't even remember what election was, but there, was, there were placards of the people that I didn't have an affinity with. And I was riding my bike, and I remember riding my bike and like veering like 20 feet away from the placards as if something was going to be contagious in, in, in riding my bike next to them, you know? It's like this kind of energy away. I don't want to have it near me. Get it away. You know, And then today, I went to the store in Point Reyes Station to get something for lunch. And there are all these men in uniform. And my system just went, 
Is it ice? Do I need to tell people? And a couple of years ago, when I saw men in uniform and they were firefighters, my heart went, oh my goodness, here are the bodhisattvas of the universe. So what I see is happening in my own system is that there is a sense of there are the people who I can relate to and understand, who I have bandwidth, resonance with, and then there are the other ones. They're other. They're the other ones. And what I see I am doing in my own mind is there's a way in which I am on board with feelings and views of loving kindness and compassion, but it is limited. As long as people believe what I believe, then I can be kind and loving and compassionate. Otherwise, I want them out of here, away, gone. Okay? So from a developmental perspective, what I notice is that I have to see the contradiction of my own hypocrisy. Okay? Not to go into judgment, not to go into, not to go into judgment about having it, but to notice it. To notice the contradiction that I value kindness, I value compassion, except for when people don't. I think everybody belongs except when people don't. I want everybody to be here except I don't want the people who don't. So as I rub up against my own inconsistencies, then it allows me to move into of, oh, look, this is curious. This is inconsistent with my own deep core values. And as I see that inconsistency, it gives me a way of focusing where I am not othering. And as I am not othering, then I can begin to think, my goodness, what I see is that everybody is scared. When I move out of my own position of othering, then I come to, we are all scared. And we have different strategies about how we manage that. So, what I see, what I see, whatever it's worth, I don't know that it's worth much, but whatever I see is is that we've got this incredible pressure that's causing our systems to go kaflui, and we are polarizing because we don't yet have the capacity to stand in the reality of we are all afraid. And how do we galvanize in a way where we can start mobilizing to take care of all of our needs? It's like an impossible question. Or is it? So a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was online and it caught my attention that Ethiopia in 12 hours planted 350 million trees in 12 hours. Okay? Now, I am pretty confident 
that those 350 million trees were planted by people who didn't all have the same views, opinions, values, or states of consciousness. However, they all got on board with the fact that trees are good. And it's good for us to plant them because we benefit. So when we step back and rather than try and figure out how to bridge what seems like impossible differences, we focus on the parts that we agree on. Then it galvanizes us in a mobility, in action around stuff that we can all mobilize. So how does this relate to loving kindness and compassion? How is this connected to equanimity? How is this connected to joy? When I see myself in the various different levels of agitation that I experience, I have to bring kindness to my experience as the first place. If I don't bring that, I don't have much. I don't have much ability to even notice or understand or comprehend what's happening for me. So I need to start with kindness. When I touch what's happening with kindness, then it gives me the ability to discern where I'm at. And that discernment then allows me to figure out what's needed next. Do I need to laugh? Do I need to go to the beach? Do I need to hang out with the whales? Do I need to sing? What do I need? To the extent that I have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to both notice and then attend to the things that I need and bring them forward, then I have more capacity to respond. Not just internally, but then externally, and look at these things in bigger pictures. When I was in Australia, it was the, uh, when uh, 9-11 happened. And uh, I, just the weekend after 9-11, I was teaching a weekend retreat with Subana, and we were teaching on the same theme, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And by the luck of the draw, because I don't remember how we figured it out, I was going to be talking about equanimity. Now, my personality structure doesn't have equanimity. I don't know about equanimity. It's not something that I was born with. It is something that I have had to develop because it's been completely not something that I, that I knew about. It's not, equanimity is not intuitive for me. But I was living in the bush in Australia and the land taught me how to listen in a way that I had never experienced before. And what I have learned with the land is how when I allow myself to connect with the earth and feel the earth and let myself be like the earth, then I have a completely 
different capacity in my ability to be with things. Because the earth has borne witness to every single birth and every single death since the beginning of time. And when I touch that and feel what that is as experience, not as an idea, it allows me to sense what equanimity might be. And how to find it. Because it's not available in my personality structure. It doesn't show up as something that I can locate easily in my day. But when I connect with nature, when I connect with ancient rocks, when I connect with the ocean, when I connect with the whales when I connect with the bees who've been around for millions and millions of years, there's something in my focus of attention that shifts from grabbing on to the specific to opening up to something that is wide and spacious and pervasive. When I touch that, it gives me much more capacity for navigating this othering that I feel that arises this wanting to have it with the people that I can relate to and not to have it with the people that I don't relate to or that I feel scared by frightened of intimidated by or deeply distressed so this equanimity that I connect with in nature allows me to then reframe the way I am relating to this agitation to these mind states to this sense of who should be here and who should not be here and what is safe This equanimity that I touch then enables the heart of compassion. It supports it. It allows me to feel the trembling that we are all experiencing now. Without that equanimity, I don't have the capacity to tune in to the trembling that we are all experiencing now. And so then as I feel that, then my system moves into how can we mobilize now and what is needed? And so just like Ethiopia came together to plant 350 million trees in 12 hours, I think what we need to do is to have signposts about what we need, steps we can take 
to start galvanizing and becoming cohesive around this climate chaos that for me is the fundamental piece that's driving the fear. A couple of years ago when I was doing some research, the the numbers were like 32 million people were impacted by climate and not able to stay in their home or in their region. And and with the way things are now, that number, there is a billion people who are living in regions that are threatened by the various things that we have seen, fire, flood, rising sea levels. It's like, it's hard to wrap minds around this, you know. And so then what happens, what happens to me, is it becomes too big. And rather than touch it, there's a a contraction and a pulling back away from it and a busying myself in order not to feel it. And so then when I touch the equanimity and it gives me the resource in the compassion to move forward, then I can be with the magnitude and notice the impact and still think about what's next. What would be supportive? How can we start galvanizing? How can we work together? Mahagosananda was a magnificent Buddhist monk and spiritual leader. And when Cambodia was in the middle of crisis and there were refugees camps all over Thailand and I don't know where they all were, it was illegal for the Cambodian people to meet together and chant. And Mahakosananda came to one of those gatherings and something like 20,000 people showed up to listen to him speak. And what he did was he started a chant It was in Pali language. And the English rendition of it was hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone does it cease. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone does it cease. Hatred never ceases ceases by hatred. But by non-hatred alone does it cease. 20,000 people chanting this together. So what we are invited to do 
if we are up to the task, is to notice when this othering arises. And rather than bring judgment, rather than bring the idea that it shouldn't be there, rather than bring an opinion about how we should be, to meet it, to touch it, to notice the dissonance of that and this abiding quality. Hatred does not cease by hatred, but by non-hatred alone does it cease. The othering is not going to get us where we need to go. And it does not matter how righteous we are on our holy mount in our othering. It's not going to win the day. It ain't going to do it. And this developmental place where we are at is not a small thing. So we bring forward kindness, an abiding sense of welcoming what is. We turn our attention to notice it. And when we are experiencing othering in all of the many forms that we can, we do, we just let our attention move back and forth between the experience of separating, of distancing, of no, that wants them out, and this quality of heart that knows hatred does not cease by hatred, but by non-hatred alone does it cease. The movement of othering is not the same as the movement of protection. It's not the same. It's different. But I see that is where we are all at. And so rather than make hatred the enemy... We need to say hatred is not something we are going to nourish. We don't other hatred. We don't other ourselves for having othering. We meet it. We touch it. We welcome it. And we bring forward the skillfulness of kindness, of compassion, of joy. When we know in the marrow of our bones that we are rooted in love, that that is our basis, that's our core, 
That's what we are made of. And that's what we will plant our flagpole in to support. Something shifts. Something very, very, very big shifts. We become absolutely fearless. Because when we know that, we're not afraid. We are prepared to do whatever it takes to maintain our knowledge, our understanding, our conviction. That love, that love, that deep, abiding, pervasive love is all we are made of in our essence. So, and we are human, and the human experience is one where we can know that, and then we don't know that. We know that, and then we get completely rattled. And so then, as we get rattled, we need each other. We need to look at each other and know that each other We've got you. You've got me. That I don't have to do it all myself. I don't have to remember everything all by myself. It's our connection with each other that's going to help us move through where we're at and galvanize I want to take a few questions And then uh, I have some wonderful things to share with you. Please, in the middle. Wait for you get the mic so that we can hear. Mm -hmm. Am I on? So I don't know if there was a silence and then there, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to ask the question because I thought it earlier and I don't know if it's totally inappropriate, but why did you give up your robes? Why did I give up my robes? I, I gave up my robes. I, I ordained, I ordained with the commitment to stay until I knew with conviction that it no longer served me. And I came to the recognition and the realization that if in addition to awakening, 
what I also long for is wholeness, then monastic life no longer served me. That makes sense. (laughs) Thank you. In the front, please. So I love what you had to say. And what I've been wrestling with lately is um, the completion of acceptance, of approval. And I've been noticing that when I see someone in opposition of me, so if I were riding my bike and I saw those people, it might be scary because they challenge my way. And that calls into question my soundness in my in my path. So as I'm listening to you and as I've been reflecting lately, it feels for me like opposition represents a lack of completion for me in approval, in my conviction of who I am. So that's an awesome insight because when you see it that clearly, you have in the seeing the instructions of where to focus. When our attention is focused outwardly for our sense of wholeness internally, we are set up. It's a set up. And there's going to be all kinds of reasons and causes and conditions that support you to have that belief system. But when you see it as clearly as you do, then you can notice the setup. And that's going to help support you to make a different choice about who and what is your flagpole. This is who I am. And it's this kind of excruciating, vulnerable process of not knowing until we know. And we have to allow that vulnerable, excruciating, not knowing to get to this is who I am. Thank you. Mm. Yes. Um, how do you apply your, these principles to something more personal, like in my brain? How do you apply these principles more, in a personal sense? Um, if you've like, had like a breakup, or you know you're dealing with somebody that's a difficult relationship, how are you applying these principles you talked about tonight? So. In a practical situation, the, there's going to be a story about what happened and then there's going to be the reaction to the story about what happened. And so in the present moment, we have the ability to meet what's actually happening and touch it new without bringing the story 
And we can watch the overlay of our thoughts and ideas as like a a sandwich, making it more complicated. He said, she said, this happened, they said, all of the rest of it. And then we come back into the present moment and touch what is happening right now. And what's happening right now, there might be tension or there might be anger, there might be fear, there might be sadness, there might be collapse. And so when there is the meeting of what is with kindness, not judgment, with kindness, then when you see what's happening, that will help you figure out, well, what is needed right now? Do you need to speak? Do you need to be silent? Do you need space? Do you need to have a friend to talk things through with? And as you are processing the layers that are revealing themselves to you, then it's possible to bring forward these different qualities. Is there tenderness and compassion to the quivering that you're experiencing yourself? Can you subtly shift frames and see the hilarity of this? You know, is there something bigger that opens up and says, you know, this is the dynamic of relationship. This is not personal to me. And so in weaving these qualities together, loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, they show up and come forward and touch you in terms of what response you can bring to the present moment. These are the things that we can bring everywhere. They can travel with us no matter where we go. It can be as simple as slowing down when we're walking. Noticing the flowers. Taking a moment to pause when you see the hummingbird. Or just pausing an extra moment when you see a tree or a rock. And just connecting with it. You know, each of us is going to develop our own set of tools or practices that help us allow these qualities to develop and bring them forward. But to know that they're part of our toolkit is really awesome. And that that's something that we can bring to each other. Question. Yes, I I remember, I think, the first time you taught here and you talked about um, giving up your robe. And I think what you said at that time was you were, um, you'd realized it was time to take the inner out. And you had mentioned I think also reading at the time This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Mm. And I remember thinking at that time that, and and the way you talked about it was um, quite beautiful. And it was one of the best talks I'd heard here in a long time at that at that point. I, um, in terms of the question I have, I guess, is how... Um, we're coming up to the September 20th soon, which is going to be the, 
the international climate strike. Uh, Greta Thunberg is telling everybody, all students, to go out on strike, all youth around the world. And uh, she wants the adults to join her. So I was wondering if you could say a little about um, what we as Buddhists should bring to that day. Beautiful question. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you brought it up. And I think this is another place of growth for us. Because traditionally, the monastic training that I have come from was very um, strong in contemplation and very strong in, in, in making it clear that as contemplatives, we had no business in politics. And part of the reason why that was the case was so that the monasteries were free zones where everybody ostensibly on any side of any political issue could meet where they could still practice. The challenge has been traditionally that the contemplative practitioners have viewed themselves as somehow separate from being engaged in the world. And we are at a crossroads where we don't have the luxury any longer of just returning to our cushions and our caves and our retreat centers and not paying attention to the urgency of what is all around us. I know His Holiness the Dalai Lama has gone to people who have been in lifetime retreat and has asked them to come out of retreat because we need their presence in the world now. Anybody who has some understanding of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity Anyone who understands that there is a difference between getting confused by the things that we are experiencing and having a perspective that is able to know, to witness, to allow it to arise with some more clarity. Every one of us can bring that to the climate strike where we are bringing the depth of our practice and understanding that we are connected fundamentally. There is no way of sustaining practice unless we have a habitable planet to live on. Unless people have their basic needs taken care of it doesn't make any sense to talk about meditation practice. So for myself, having both lived in the monastery for decades, as well as been tossed and tumbled by fires and having big impact and being without a home for a year, I get it. The basic needs need to be there before basic practice is possible. And so we bring our passion and our commitment and our understanding and our depth and our love of the world that we live in and seeing that is not separate from our practice, that they are conjoined. So let me share more and then I'm going to have a special treat. 
a couple when around the time that I disrobed a dear friend Melanie I was talking to her and telling her that one of the things that I have always wanted to do and is do more singing and combined song and meditation so she said well you should check out Threshold Choir so I did and so I, I, I got involved and I started singing with Threshold Choir and I did it for myself and I did it for my mama because my mom is frail and elderly and I knew at some point or another uh, she was going to need to transition and I wanted Threshold Choir to be able to help support me to support her. So never in my wildest dreams did I have any idea what that meant in terms of how powerful that was. So I was asked at the last minute to come and there was two songs that I wanted to sing and I thought, I don't think I can do it. And I thought, well, I'll ask my song sisters and ask them to help hold it for me, with me. And so as is the case with Threshold Choir, in a couple of days, it's just like magic. So what I'd like to do is to invite my Threshold Song Sisters to join me and we have the extra honor of having Kate Munger with us, who's the founder of Threshold Choir, to lead us in two songs. One song, the choir will sing. You are welcome to join in as you catch on. And the other, she will teach us. Okay? So please, come. The song we're going to sing for you is called Equanimity, written by Cree Schlafer from Portland, Oregon. No. 
The song that you're going to sing, <clears throat> the lyrics came from the Democratic National Committee and they put it on tote bags and bumper stickers. And the quote is, hate has no home here. So I think we have to hold them to it. <clears throat> Here's the whole song. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Equanimity stole it from me. <clears throat> I'll sing it all the way through and then I'll do it line by line. Hate has no home here. 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 I'll sing then you. <clears throat> Hate has no home here. 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 Hate has no home. From the top, pretend you know it. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home. You did know it. And you know it as a group better than each of us knows it individually, which is a, cl a clue for tonight. One more time. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has one, two, three. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has no home here. Hate has no
Should we get up and stand up? Let's stand up Oh, yes. Starting over here this time. Can we do that? So what I'd like to do is to invite you, those is when you are singing, chanting, to move around in a circle and look at each other in the face as you are singing this song, okay? And it'll be easier if you stay in your chant group rather than move to the other one. But if you circle around, walk around, and just look at each other in the face, in the eyes as you're singing this song, okay?
So I want to thank everyone here for your presence, your love, your compassion, your practice, and your commitment to bring these teachings in the way that we know how into the world. And I want to thank my song sisters once again. Awesome. Just awesome. And I just want to say one more thing. You know, with whatever, 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 it's not easy for me to hold a tune these days. And so I thought, oh, wow, I want to do these songs. And then I thought, I don't have to do it myself. <laughs> I totally don't have to do it myself. We don't have to do it ourselves. We can do it together with each other. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.